how to start? Well, you know, it's just writing. I mean, here's something important to remember about dialogue. Every word matters. No, it doesn't. They're modern. I want to go to this place that I think it needs to go to. The only thing that counts is what you see on the screen. I will write like four or five, six hours a day. And it will be a voice made of ink and rage. Okay, I'm, re I'm really glad you asked me that question. Welcome to the show. This is episode 363, where I spoke with the creators of For All Mankind, the hit series on Apple, Matt Walpert and Ben Debbie. Uh, I spoke to the guys about how they got started with writing. Matt couldn't remember not wanting to be a screenwriter. These guys met at NYU. They both got jobs on Entourage, and they've been working together ever since for the past 14 years. They've also worked on Fargo, The Umbrella Academy, and most recently, For All Mankind, listed as the creators along with Ronald D. Moore. In this interview, we talk a lot about this obligation to alternate history, what it means to write this show, how they work as writing partners, um, a lot of things about changing history and trying to make things better or worse, but base it in reality, what makes up their writer's room, and a lot of talk about just how they made this partnership work and how you can do the same and how to find a good writing partner if you're looking for one. I uh, can't really recall what got me into screenwriting other than just loving movies from a very young age. You know, I remember watching Singing in the Rain and Funny Girl with my mom when we were little and just being kind of transported to that. So I've always, I, I don't remember wanting to do anything else, to be honest. <laughs> um, and so it was always kind of that thing where I was like, well, that, that's just what I'm going to do when I grow up. Um, and then uh, I, I wound up going to NYU film school where I met Ben, uh, we, we did our first, we were in our first film production class together. Um, and that's kind of how we, we met uh, and became friends. Yeah, and uh, for me, you know, I grew up in LA and my, my parents worked in the entertainment industry and my father, I think the moment I knew this is what I was gonna do is my father was a set decorator when I was a kid and he worked on Quantum Leap. <laughs> And our garage was filled with props from that show, which I don't know if you're familiar with the show, but it's, you know, every episode is a different era, a different location. So as you can imagine, it was a place that my sister and I would get lost in every day in that garage and just, you know, make believe. And I think, I always think back to that as sort of, there's no, <laughs> there's no way I'm not doing this. Um, and, you know, it was a, uh, I wish it was a simple road from there to, to the career we eventually took, but it definitely had a lot of bumps on the way. How did you guys kind of get connected? Did you meet working on Entourage or what's kind of that backstory? No, we, we actually, so we met at NYU Film School, but we didn't start writing together until we were um, both in LA. Matt was kind of working on the TV side and I was um, working on more of the feature development side. Um, so for us, we would spend nights after our day jobs, basically meeting in delis across Los Angeles, just literally working from, you know, from the time we left work to midnight, sitting in those delis, writing, you know, working on features, working on pilots, trying to, trying to get a break. Um, and, you know, Entourage was that first big break for us. That was the moment, you know, we got, I remember we got the meeting and even our agent said to us, like, you're not going to get this job, but it's good practice to just go in there. 
because uh, we were so green. But in a weird way, I think because we were so green, it helped us going in for that interview that we kind of didn't know what you were supposed to do. So we just sort of said the truth <laughs> and what we felt was wrong with the show and what we could improve, which is not what all showrunners want to hear. <laughs> um, and I think they, they took to us with that. And, and yeah, so that was really our first, first big job, which, which feels like a hundred years ago right now. No, just logistically, do you guys, are you, are you guys listed as, as a partnership? Or are you still individuals and you kind of end up working together and pitch together? Like, what are some of those things people might not understand about the business and writing partnerships? I feel like, uh, this is Matt Wolper, by the way, I feel like uh, at this point, having written together for, uh, like being paid to write together for, I think, 14 years now, I, I feel like we've actually merged into one human being. Like we're not even, uh, like we have the same thoughts. It's really kind of getting scary, but yes, we are a partnership. Um, we, uh, you know, we basically write everything together. Um, and, uh, if Ben ever tries to write anything by himself, I will hunt him down now. Um, uh, yeah. So, you know, it's, it was interesting, um, I think it, that partnership really helped us because not only are you, you know, we think of ourselves as like a, a, a writer's room of two, basically, like it's, it's just that person you can bounce ideas off of. And it, and it is so valuable. Ben has a point of view and perspective I don't have and vice versa. Um, and we're both perfectionists. So we both push each other to kind of, um, do the best work we can, uh, but especially early on also having that ally that you can go into a room like on your first day of, you know, uh, as a staff writer and entourage and you have, you immediately have a friend in the room already is, is really invaluable. Um, yeah. So it's, you know, and obviously the, the, the only sort of compromise on the business side of it is that you basically just share a salary. Mm -hmm. Uh, so it's, it's, that's the trade-off. <laughs> what are, what were some of those early things where you knew it was connection? So I'd imagine you have very, very similar tastes in what you want to write about. I've also heard partners say that you're kind of a draft ahead. Like it's almost like your first drafts, like a second draft. Some of those things you're kind of speeding up. Did you, do you guys see natural strengths and weaknesses that you accommodate for? Huh. That's a good question. Um, I wouldn't say strengths and weaknesses. I mean, we, we grew up in very different ways. We have very different perspectives. I think our the way we write is sort of like a relay race in a way where like I'll, I'll take a stab at half the script, Matt takes a stab at half, and then we like pass it off to each other. So we're like each other's editors in a way. And honestly, I don't, I wouldn't trust anybody other than Matt to, you know, if he doesn't like something, then I'm, I'm like, well, it doesn't work. Um, and vice versa. And I think so it's more of an uh, re-editing each other process, rewriting each other. Mm -hmm. And kind of by the end, we have a, a draft and we sit together and go through it. But, you know, the the part I'm skipping there is obviously the part, you know, before you write, which really for any writer, that conversation uh, is so valuable as a partnership because you have someone to talk out the ideas with, talk out the story, break the story with. And that's the part we do do together. Um, before we, you know, before we had even this show, I think we would do it with every, every one of our pilots. And now we do it with a bigger group. But yeah, I think in terms of how we work together, yeah, it's like sort of a, a relay race, a baton pass. 
Is that kind of something you can fall back on? It seems like uh, in addition to being perfectionist, you'd want to be some kind of North star just to make sure that like, it's, it's, it, even if something's great, is it in line with whatever those first conversations were like? How do you, do you kind of just kind of go back and forth and do you talk about that and build upon it as you're writing something? Yeah, you, you always want to have that big picture um, goalpost that you're working towards. And I think it's always helpful to have that in mind, but it's also helpful on the other hand, writing is so full of discovery as you go that you, if you're clinging so much to what something, what you thought something was going to be in the beginning, mm. you're really not being flexible enough in your mind to find the best version of something. Um, you know, like in, in For All Mankind, we, we knew from the very beginning of, before we even wrote uh, a, a word, we knew that we wanted the second season of the show to be really about like Cuban Missile Crisis on the Moon. That was just like, we knew that was what we wanted to do. Um, so we had that kind of goalpost, but then a lot of the other things in terms of how we got there um, changed a lot uh, in the breaking process and in the writing process. And then, um, and other times the goalpost changes where it's like, well, uh, you know, maybe we should off of how, how these two characters are interacting, uh, let's take this relationship in a different direction. So it's, it's important to have both. Have you always done, it seems like, so I'm looking at Entourage, About a Boy, Fargo, Umbrella Academy, uh, Fargo, Umbrella, or Adaptations, Entourage, loosely based on Mark Wahlberg. Is For All Mankind the first bit just, just like a massive amount of research? It seems like if you ever can't figure out what's next, it would go back to the research. How did you kind of start this? Yeah, it's funny. When you look back at our career, it literally makes no sense. Uh, <laughs> even hearing those names, like what, what is the connective <laughs> tissue? I have no idea. But it also in a strange way, I think does define us because I think we're hard to define in terms of as writers. I think we like writing comedy and drama, sci-fi, horror, like we, we like all the genres. So for us, I think, you know, Fargo was kind of actually that point in our career where finally there was a show that sort of fit us the best in terms of our tone, our sensibility of writing. Um, but yes, I have to say there wasn't a lot of research. I mean, we wanted, you know, we needed to capture the Midwest and we wanted to be true to the Midwest and that culture as much as possible. But we were not prepared for the amount of research that needed to be involved in For All Mankind. And I think, you know, we did realize as soon as we started talking about it, that even though it's an alternate history, we didn't want it to be oh, it's alternate history, so let's forget the facts or the science. We went the opposite way. We said, because it's alternate history, we felt even more of an obligation mm -hmm. to be true, not only to history and as much as possible, but to the science of the space program of the time. And a lot of the ships, a lot of the ideas we first came up with were in fact based on ideas that NASA was hoping to do, the hope, hoping to bring to life. Um, that never came to be because once we landed on the moon, the interest kind of withered away. So all these ideas for like a, a moon base for the sea dragon were just left as designs, you know, mm -hmm. in dusted up warehouses. And I got to say, it's one of the things I think I really enjoy the most is that we took that research and what we discovered and we said, hey, let's bring this to life. You know, we can do that with the show. So, yeah, mm -hmm. no, it's so, on. so I guess to answer your question, it's, it's, it's very challenging, but I guess it's also rewarding in certain ways. 
Are there any other models to look to? Like the only thing I recently Man in the High Castle's alternate, I guess technically Plan the Apes is alternate if you want to really, you know, is there anything else you guys look to that like, to, for examples? That's a really good question. And it's, and I don't know that there is because we, we definitely talked a lot about, about alternate history um, and how it had been done prior to our show. And, and what they usually do is they'll jump a bunch of time and the world is totally different than you would have thought it would be, uh, would have been. Um, and the, the basic concept of our show is we're starting from, you know, a divergence point and we're showing the alternate history yeah. grow over time. And, um, you know, uh, really, coming at that both from a historical perspective, but also through characters and seeing not only how the world is changing, but how these people are changing by decade, uh, I think is a pretty unique, I mean, the crown sort of does that with their characters, in, but those are based on historical characters. So it's right. not an alternate history, but they are jumping through time. And I think ours is really the only one that combines those two concepts. It's definitely more like you're showing us what's happening. So it is more of a butterfly effect because we're seeing the entire thing. Are there things you guys, so what I've seen the first two seasons, I haven't seen the new season yet. I feel like that's okay to talk about. Maybe our listeners have already heard the first, seen the first two as well. So season two ends with, uh, I think we're 95 going to Mars. When you guys are writing different decades, which you start in the sixties, I believe you know, it, based on natural, what actually happened to some degree do you do anything unusual to bring it to your version of the nineties? Are you making soundtracks while you're writing? Are you doing anything weird like that to like get your head in a, a new nineties era? Yeah, very much so. Actually. I think, I think it's important to us to not only, you know, research or discuss what's different about the era we're in because of the show, but also keeping a foot in, in what keeps true to that era. So Music is a big part of that. I think for us, one of the fun things of this of this job is at the beginning of every year, our music supervisors, uh, Christine and Maggie, they send us like hundreds of songs from the era, and you know we you know we not we use it not only I use it not only as a way to kind of get into the writing and into the you know that era a little bit, but also as a way you know to when we're writing scenes, Matt and I do use music a lot, and sometimes we put the songs like the songs that are at the end of every year. Those are in the script, you know, those are kind of songs that we set out. So music is a big part of what we do. Um, the other thing I'd say is also research. You know, I think even though this shows alternate history, and like you said, it's an original idea, you know, it's not based on IP. I mean, the IP I think we rely on is history. I mean, so we, we begin every season talking about big events from that era as well. Like Matt said, season two, I mean, Cuban Missile Crisis was a big, a big part of that. In season one, we talked a lot about Apollo 13. Um, we talked about a lot of those types of missions um, and same thing for season three. Like we go into it looking at big ev historical events and how we can repurpose them or comment on them in a different way through our alt history. Talk about some of the, I think this was maybe uh, season two more. So what were some of the decisions about, um, you know, the Russians beat Russians beat us to the moon. So now we want to have the first female space program and, and adding, um, the women's history and civil rights. What were some of those conversations like? And how did you staff the writer's room to get the right perspectives in there or the most perspectives in there? Um, I would say a lot of that 
initial, those initial ideas were driven by the research we were doing when we started to look at the, the reality of the space race at that time. So like the idea of the Mercury 13, which was this group of female pilots who were training sort of uh, not alongside the Mercury 7, but sort of in a separate program. And then um, their program was canceled in large part because John Glenn testified before uh, Congress about how women don't belong in space. And, you know, things like that, uh, we felt like our... Um, our show as an alternate history had the opportunity to sort of ask the what if of like, what if that had been redeemed? And it's not like in our show, it's like suddenly the Russians beat us to the moon and suddenly like Richard Nixon is a feminist. No, it's that the Russians put a woman on the moon first and he feels threatened. And so he's like, I want a woman and I want a blonde. Like he's still a sexist guy, <laughs> but it's, but you know, so the idea of idealistic things happening from a more cynical motivation was a big mm -hmm. part of the early part. And that's, that is what the space race was. It wasn't um, America and Russia saying like, let's just do science. It was <laughs> like, we don't want the other guy to get, uh, the high ground of space, you know, because it was through the prism of the Cold War. So uh, the Cold War and this sort of nuclear escalation, the fear of that led to these amazing technical achievements. So we really wanted to look at uh, the, the story through that prism of like, how can we bring things in, like uh, at looking at um, at civil rights through the Daniel Poole character and how difficult it was for people of color to come into the program as well. And, uh, you know, Ellen Wilson being a person in the closet, um, you know, really showing the different points of view. And so, yeah, to your, to your point, it was very important to us as we were staffing to find people that could speak to those things. Cause like I said before, with, with Ben and myself, we each have a different perspective, having come from different upbringings and different experiences. So the more of those points of view you can get, the richer your world is going to be. Is it difficult to present some of those things, especially when you're writing about a certain era that people no longer connect with or they see very differently? I mean, even like going back 10 years ago, people would look at entourage as more sexist and some of the obviously, you know. Um, is it hard to write some of those characters and those scenes that how they're reacting to a gay person or a black person or a female? Like, is it, do you go about it in a subtle way? Or are you over the top of it? How do you kind of think about presenting that to an audience today? I have to say that's probably one of the central challenges we've experienced actually, you know, even with our actors, sometimes many times mm -hmm. they they'll read something and go, I, I'm, I don't agree. I wouldn't say this. And we have to remind them, this is a period piece. This is not, First of all, you're an actor. <laughs> this is not you, number one. Number two, it's a period piece. And we want, we really do want to capture uh, the era. And sometimes capturing an era is capturing what was uncomfortable in that era. And I think that's so key. If you're going to ask the big questions, if we're going to, you know, dive in deep as we want to do on this show, then you got to make people uncomfortable. And you got to, you got to embrace those things that even through the lens of today don't look great. You know, I think, for instance, in season one, you know, there's that big moment where Deke and Ellen are together on that capsule and, you know, she comes out to him. She tells him the truth. And I think uh, most shows in that moment, including the, the argument in the writer's room was, well, I mean, he's got to embrace her here, right? Like he, and, you know, what Matt and I kept coming back to is, 
would he really, would a guy like this in that era who, with his background really suddenly come to terms with that? And we felt he wouldn't, you know? And, and in a way it's tragic. It's a really hard scene to watch sometimes, but it also felt true to the time and to the character. And I think played a big part in Ellen's trajectory from then on in many mm -hmm. ways. So I think not only do we embrace the idea of really trying to capture the era, we use it as a storytelling device. And yes, it gets tricky, you know, like right now we're dealing with a, a storyline season three about Don't Ask, Don't Tell um, mm -hmm. that, that we deal with in season three of the show. And again, it was important to us to, especially with a character like Ellen Wilson, to have these issues still come up. But of course they come up through a different prism. I mean, the, the last thing I'd bring up is the Cold War, right? When we started the show, you know, people didn't, young people didn't really know about the Cold War. I remember this is an issue. Like, how do people know about the Cold War? Here we are all these years later, and it's as relevant as ever with the what's going on in Ukraine. So I'm constantly reminded that as much as you talk about history, history does repeat itself. You know, mm -hmm. unfortunately, a lot of the terrible things that, that have had, that we thought we moved past do come back. And I mean, we're seeing it in the news every day today, like things that you thought were settled things that you thought we we've improved are are back to square one in many ways. So I want to move away from the uncomfortable to the the more fun part of the show. So just to over summarize everything, America's we lose the space race in the beginning, but that puts us on Mars faster, which is really relating to a lot of things we're seeing today. Everybody who's following Elon Musk, all he's, all he's doing. Um, talk about some of those decisions that I think he said something like, one time Elon Musk did something like we quit tracking how we built the pyramids. Now we forgot how to do it. And that's how he saw space and, and some of these things with NASA. So what are some of the exciting things about if we did get there in 1995, what are some of those advancements that you guys have been talking, even though it's in the past, it's kind of futuristic at the same time. Yeah, it's, it's so much fun. We, uh, what, I forget what the term we use is, but it's sort of like our show really is like becoming more and more of the past and the future smushed together. Um, and, you know, I mean, I, I do think that, um, a lot of the stuff that Elon Musk is talking about and a lot of the stuff that you see in our show is possible to do now. It's really about money and about the acceptance of risk because people are probably going to die. <laughs> you know, things go, space is an unrelenting bitch as one of our characters <laughs> says in season three. And, um, and it, it wants to kill you. Like, so um, if you can accept that it's expensive and that, that there's a real inherent danger in it and you still want to go forward, which is what people throughout history have accepted when they were crossing an ocean or, you know, getting in a wagon train to go across, uh, you know, an expanse of land to find something over the hill, um, you know. And so I think for us getting to, if you have those two things, then yeah. The technology will follow because there's, especially with the investment of those resources, you know, you think about just on, on the level of computing power, the difference between a computer at the beginning of that 60s space race and the end of the space race, the, the achievements were massive. Um, and imagine, and sort of one of the, the, the premises of our show is if that rate of uh, technological advancement had been continued because the resources were there and the pressure was there um, and the support of the government and the, and the people was there, 
you really would continue to see these amazing accomplishments. And, and it's a lot of fun to think through the different technological changes and, and also what wouldn't have changed, um, you know? Uh, and so like one of the fun things we do in season three is we have the Apple Newton, uh, which was sort of a failed product. It didn't do that well, but in our world, because of the sort of the video technology to talk back and forth with the moon that NASA developed, there's a, a sort of a, a proto FaceTime technology that Apple was able to use. And now everybody's got these handheld video devices that they can talk to people on. And it's like, it, it, but you've seen the technology develop within the seasons of our show. So it feels real. Cause in season two, they had these big desktop video phones uh, and now it's kind of gone more mobile. So I, I, we love that stuff. How do you, how are you putting people in the writer's room? So we've already talked about having a lot of different voices. Are you thinking about the technology and researchers and some of those things like that? Like, is there anything different about your writer's room as opposed to others writer's rooms because of the type of show? Yes. We go down these tangents for hours <laughs> <laughs> about random political or historical news. I mean, I, I almost feel by this point, we need an alt historian in our room, someone to yeah. track all the changes we've made. Cause it gets mm. to the point where, where you're talking about something, wait, wait, no, but by now that wouldn't work. And they didn't go into Afghanistan. So what does that mean? And literally in each region of the world, there would be a totally different impact. So I have to say like, we, we love bringing people to our room who, who have a healthy appreciation for history and science, of course. Um, and we have people, a few people with that background in our room, including as consultants, we have an astronaut, a former astronaut who uh, consults with us and reads our scripts and we, we debate with him. So we go out of our way to make sure we have the smartest people who have the knowledge of this to discuss these things with. But, you know, in the end of the day, I have to say putting, you know, that's all important and it's a big part of the show. But for Matt and I, it's, it's the characters. Like mm -hmm. first and foremost, it's a character drama. And I think we start every season and every day with that in mind. Like, what are the characters doing? Why are they doing it? What's going on with them right now? And, you know, we let the science, the history kind of piggyback that. Because I think that in the end, that's, that's the power of television. You know, the, who are these characters you want to bring into your life every week? Um, and I think that's something we emphasize from day one with the show. When you talk to actors about this show, we mentioned The Crown. Um, you guys both worked on Fargo as well. Do you have to pitch it at all like a limited series? I mean, I know Joel Kinnaman's been around, but it seems like if you're hopping decades, obviously he can't be there forever if it continues on the way it is. Um, how do you talk to actors about this and and just what their changes are? You know, what happened between season two and season three and some of those type of things? Yeah, it's this weird uh, hybrid of... Uh, ongoing series and a limited series and that there are limited arcs for certain characters. And there's kind of a, um, we talk about the show a lot as if it were a symphony where it's like at certain points in the symphony, there's different movements, different mm -hmm. instruments rise to the front and then they take a back seat. So even within a season, you know, there, there is that cause we have a huge ensemble. Um, so uh, yeah, it's, it's definitely, I think, some actors have a harder time than others in wrapping their mind around um, that idea of, um, of aging. And um, it's definitely been fraught at times with Ben and I trying to convince all of these beautiful actors, like, no, we want to put more plastic <laughs> stuff on your face to make you look really bad. Um, but you have to, you know, you have to push that as much as you can without going so far that it doesn't, it starts to look unreal, 
you know, mm-hmm. and that's kind of the balance is, is the more, the more you're pushing people in their thirties, it's like, you know, you have to keep it within the reality of their face. Um, but even just the, um, the physicality the actors bring to it, they all approach it from different ways, but, um, they really do embrace the idea of aging in a way that I've been really uh, proud of uh, and, and pleased with that they, I think as actors, it's a rare challenge to get to play someone over that much of someone's life, you know? I think we're almost out of time. I usually like to do like kind of a break-in question, but since you guys are a partnership, I thought, um, have you seen any partnerships that failed? Why did they fail or any advice for kind of choosing a writing partner and, and some other ideas about that? Huh. It's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> I would say, you know, it's interesting because Matt and I were friends before we were partners. And I think that helped mm-hmm. because this does test your friendship. <laughs> you know, it, it's a big thing. Like all the stress, the jobs that we went through really hard times in our career. Um, and I think having that friendship as a basis um, helped a lot throughout all of it, you know? And, I, and I, so in terms of writing teams or partnerships we've seen, I've seen a few succeed. I've seen a few fail. I feel like you want to feel like you're, you're getting more from, by being with this other person. That, that's the key. I know that sounds simplistic, but it's almost like, what it, are you adding something? Because I, I have to say, the hardest time is in the beginning of your career when you're trying to make it and having someone there to commiserate with you and to celebrate with you is huge. But then, at, you know, at the point we're in now where we're running our own show and creating our own show, it's even more important to have a partner because doing this alone, I, I mean, it's a lot of work for any one person. Having a partnership that we've built over more than a decade now, being able to do this, knowing that if he's in a meeting, he can answer questions just as well as I can, if not more, um, is invaluable. And so I, if you can find the right person, yeah, it's, it's great. And if you can't, be careful. Yeah, and I would just add to that, I think, you know, having a similar um, kind of general outlook on life in terms of what you, you know, like it wasn't a mistake that Ben and I were both, you know, when we were starting out, like Ben said, we would, we were workaholics, like we would go from our day job and we would work another five, six hours sitting at the Denny's on sunset with the, with the other four weirdos that were in there every night. And like, that was just like, we were both so committed to that. And I think, you know, writing is such an exhaustive process and, and breaking into Hollywood is such a, there's such a high wall keeping everybody kind of out that um, you really have to be committed. And for a partnership, you both, I think, have to be as committed as the other for the long haul. Hey, thanks for tuning in to the show. So many great lessons on screenwriting there. If you're looking for some more information, though, some more about the craft of writing for television, uh, we have a new course called Script Mastermind, where we have 21 of our proven experts telling you how to write for television, how to write a screenplay, how to break in, things like that. Uh, this includes shows of Gordon Levitt, Judd Apatow, also the writers of shows like Handmaid's Tale, Mosquito Coast, Hunters, Solar Opposites, Resident Alien, WandaVision, the list goes on and on. Check that out. Uh, you can get this all right now for $1 at scriptmastermind.com television. That is the television screenwriting masterclass. It is at scriptmastermind.com slash television. We'll see you next time with a new episode.